The reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he, de- will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Good morning, family and friends. To get started this morning, I would like you to um, imagine that you are taking a nice hike on a beautiful day like today. Maybe at Rising Park in Lancaster. Anybody been to Rising Park in Lancaster? Do you know where Rising Park is? Give me some feedback. Yes? Okay, you've been to Rising Park? All right, so beautiful scene, right? Imagine you're just, uh, maybe this is the day you're all alone. Uh, you got some time to relax, and you're walking through the park, and you're enjoying this hike, and you, you've been to Rising Park, you go up the hill, and you keep going up, and you finally make it to the top. And the top is kind of a beautiful place. It's a lookout over the city of Lancaster, and um, uh, you know, it's kind of a beautiful scene to stand there. Um, you know, if you go under the bar, don't do this, and you know, step out a little farther and look. It's really pretty, right? Now imagine you're there. It's a beautiful day, all alone, enjoying the lookout, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a hangry black bear starts coming towards you. Didn't see it coming. Maybe two or three. Maybe they assume, these black bears, that you have stolen all three of their black bear cubs and their mothers, and it's Mother's Day. Maybe all of that's happening. And they're angry and hangry, all together. And you don't have, like, a Colton Schooley with you that can just take on these bears and defeat them all and crush them. And it, You're in trouble, right? You're in trouble. And so you look around, and, they're, and the, their speed is picking up, and they're coming after you. And you've got a choice to make. To stay and fight those bears is certain death. You're you're done. You're going to die. There's no choice. And then you notice, coming out, you've been to Rising Park, it's a cliff. Coming out of the side of the cliff are just two trees. There's only two. And your only option there, as this bear is closing in, is you've got to decide which tree are you going to jump into to save your life. Now, Unavailable to you at the moment is this fact that one of those trees has deep roots that goes into the rock and it could without a doubt support your weight if you jumped onto it. Um, it It could stabilize itself. It could hold you and if you jumped onto that tree you'd be fine until the bear finally left. But the other tree had really shallow roots kind of on the surface of the rock and if you touched that tree with your weight that tree would snap and you would die. What is it in that scenario, the one factor that determines whether you live or die? What's the one factor? Picking the right tree, right? 
That's the only thing in that moment that matters is, did you pick the tree that can actually hold up under the weight of your body? Picking the right tree. You see, it's actually not about, in that moment, how much you trust the tree. Like, I really like this tree, and it's got the best leaves, and, and so I really like... It's not about how much you trust the tree. It's not even about how good you are at jumping. You just got to get onto the tree. It's all about picking the right tree to trust. If you've been journeying along with us uh, in the book of Luke, uh, I don't envy the job that Luke had when he recorded the story of the gospel. You see, Luke undertook the effort of putting together a narrative of Jesus' life with a particular purpose. The purpose is not just historical, although it's a historical account. The purpose is not just entertainment, although there's a lot of good stories in this in this book, the purpose of the Gospel of Luke was to walk people through an opportunity to decide what they're going to make of Jesus, what they're going to do with him. And if you watch what Luke did throughout all of the Gospels, he establishes credibility of Jesus in the beginning, and then he walks you through what it takes from about chapter 10 forward, the kind of devotion that you're going to have to have if you're going to follow Jesus. And when we come to chapter 17 and chapter 18 of Luke, these chapters are powerful in leading people to following Christ. Being a citizen of the kingdom, they're essential to understand what he's trying to do when he writes this uh, letter to us on how we are going to actually be disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, when we oftentimes talk about either becoming a Christian or being a Christian, um, most of the conversation that we have revolves around things like how much faith you have. Is it a little or is it a lot? How much do you have? Or sometimes we talk about the strength of our faith. My faith is really strong or my faith is feeling kind of weak right now. And sometimes our conversation even revolves around how we act. Like, I'm doing good, I'm being good, or I'm not doing good. And these, time, these are oftentimes the conversations that people have when they're thinking about becoming a Christian. Like, they say things like, I don't have enough faith to be able to do that. Or, I'm not good enough to do that. Now, all of these are important things. The size of your faith, the strength of your faith, how you act. But the primary, original, first concern is not those things. The first real question is not, how much faith do you have? The first question is this, who do you actually have faith in? And Luke chapter 18 is all about that. Now this might seem like an unnecessary question to such a fine audience as this, and maybe as the audience that Jesus was talking to, um, to a group of seasoned believers. The question of who you trust might seem a little bit unnecessary, so you might be here ready to downshift into zone-out mode and wait for the next, you know, 20-some minutes and we'll be out of here. But listen, that's why we have Luke chapter 18. Jesus is teaching a group of people who would think the question of who do you trust is ridiculous. That if you ask the people in Luke 18, who do you really trust? Jesus, the, the people that Jesus was talking to would say, that question's stupid. Listen, obviously I trust God. I'm religious. I'm faithful. I give my money. I show up to church services, so to speak. I'm obedient. In fact, I'm even impressive with my religion. They would say all of that. And they would say, it's obvious that I trust God. 
This is why Luke 18 is so important. Because Luke 18 is attempting to challenge the certainty, and he wants us to check to see if we really do actually trust God. In Luke 18, you get five pictures, okay? So we're, we're going to quickly look at the five pictures. Five portraits of trust that will lead you to, number one, personal diagnosis, to really know if you trust God or not. You'll see in these portraits of faith if you really do. And secondly, it'll show you the pathway on how to trust. Let's start with three pictures of faith that are the usual suspects of things we trust that are not often God. So we have usual suspects. We have things we turn to that we place our faith, that we place our trust in that are not God. And there's three pictures of this that we see in Luke chapter 18. The first one Mike read for us. Luke 18, 1 through 8. This parable was originally told, uh, its first purpose is to teach the disciples to pray with endurance. Um, the widow goes to the judge who is not even God-fearing, doesn't really care about the widow, but she has persistence and she shows up day after day, day after day, seeking what she wants. And Jesus says, how absurd is it that we, th this is a normal story for that day. This would typically happen in Jesus' day. And he says, think about this. How absurd is it that a woman would be willing to go day after day with endurance to petition her request to a person that doesn't love her and doesn't care for her. And yet there's a God that cares, is generous, wants to speedily, quickly act on your behalf, and we so quickly give up on prayer. That's the primary point of the story. But if you look in this woman's life, <clears throat> the undertone of this life, this woman is in a situation where the judge holds all the power. This judge has all of the power in this woman's life to solve her problem. Her problem is she needs um, uh, uh, to be avenged from these oppressors, these people that are harming her. Most likely she's a woman who has you know, a landlord that needs money that she probably can't pay because she can't have a job because she's a woman and now she's a widow. She's got problems. She probably has a lot of people hurting her right now. And the one person in her life that has power is this judge. He is able to do something for her that will give her what she wants and so she goes to him constantly. And my point of this person is this. One of the areas that we trust, that we place our trust in, that it's not God, is others. We all have people like this woman has. People who we have given power to, who we believe possess the ability to give us what we deeply desire. Then this might be uh, a family member, maybe a parent. Uh, this could be a friend, that if I get the right friends, or if this person becomes my friend, or if I can just get rid of this person, my life will be fine. This might be a spouse or a potential spouse. You ever look in your life and say, if I finally find that person, my life will be okay. A person has power over you. Or maybe it's a job. Uh, you think your life will be okay if you have a certain job, and so the person who can give you that job has all the power. Maybe it's a mentor or someone in authority over you. And if they can just give you approval, you'll be okay. You see, in all these situations, we have people that we've given power to, that we trust, that we put all our hope in, that if things go the way we want them to go with them, our life will be okay. Here's how you diagnose this in your life. I, I want to give you diagnosis in each step, okay? Uh, because you might actually trust other people and not trust God. Here's how you diagnose if this is true in your life. 
This is true in your life when you don't actually pray your fears. When you don't actually pray what you're worried about, what you're anxious about. All you do is hold out hope that a person will finally come through. That potential spouse, that boss that can give you a promotion, that mentor that can give you praise. All you do is just hold out hope that that person will finally come through. And you might not even know who the person is. You just have this being out there that can give you what you think that you need. And you don't really pray to God asking and trusting that He has the ability to give you what you need. You just trust that somebody else might come through. That's the diagnosis of that. So that's number one, we trust others. Number two, the parable in verses 9 through 14. This is a parable that tells about two people that go up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. And the Pharisee is pretty impressed with himself. In fact, the whole reason for this parable is to teach us that we oftentimes don't just trust others, but we trust ourselves primarily. Look in verse 9. It says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, looked down upon them. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other tax collector. Listen to verse 11, the prayer of the Pharisee. He was standing by himself and prayed thus within himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And that's the conclusion of his prayer. You see, many people in Jesus' day actually prayed like this. In fact, it was a commendable thing to do. If you had the capacity to say this in your prayer, you were an impressive person. This was an accomplishment, that if you could come to the temple and pray like this Pharisee prayed, you have arrived on the scene of the Jewish life. Look at me. I'm not like these people that I hold in contempt because I'm better than them. Look at what I give. Look at what I do. Look at what I've accomplished. Their minds were fixed. His mind was fixed on his life, on his activity, and on his performance. Now, this example is in the positive tone. Uh, not that it's a positive thing, but it's in the positive tone, meaning I'm pretty impressed with myself. This guy is, is happy with himself. He's liking what he sees. But it can be just as true in the negative form. You can walk up to the temple to pray, and you can say things like, God... I can't believe what a mess I've made in my life. All I do is mess everything up. I never do anything right, God. I'm just a fool. I can't ever do enough to be better than anybody else. I'm just the lowest on the totem pole. No one likes me. I'm horrible. You could say things like that and be in the same line of thinking as this Pharisee. Here's how you diagnose if you really trust yourself. You see, in both cases, positive or negative, you're either elated or you're disappointed because who do you trust? Yourself. Here's how you diagnose this. You diagnose this when you realize that your prayer life is really just self-talk. That it really doesn't have petition to a divine being that's bigger than you. That your prayer life really is just the mental conversation that continues to run in your own mind. Now, it might be positive. Man, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look how awesome I am. I'm nailing it this week. People are impressed with me. That, that could be your self-talk. Or it could also be, you just be quiet. You're an idiot. You never do anything right. You're so stupid. It could be that self-talk. And if your downtime, if your conversation in your mind is made up solely of self-talk, 
and not prayer, whether it's positive or negative, who do you trust? You trust you. When prayer life is absent and self-talk is present, whether it's praising yourself or despising yourself, both are expressions that you trust you. Let me give you the third one. Down in verse 30. Pretty uh, famous story of the rich young ruler. uh, Not verse 30, I'm sorry. Verse 18 through 30. The rich young ruler shows up and he calls Jesus good teacher. He says, good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, keep the commandments. And he says, which ones? Now, we don't have time to really dive into all this. I love this story. But Jesus tells him how many commands. Do you know? Does he tell him all ten? He only tells him six. And he only tells him the six that have to do with how he interacts with people, with horizontally. He doesn't tell him the four that have to do with how he interacts vertically. He says, okay, rich man, you want to inherit eternal life, keep the commandments. And the man says, okay, which ones? Jesus says, the ones that have to do with how you treat people, how you interact with people, how you care for people. And he says, I've kept all these from my youth. I've done all these. And in Mark's account, it says he knows that he still lacks something. And Jesus looks at him and he loves him, Mark 10 says. He loves this young man. He tells him the truth and he says this. Sell your possessions. If you'll do that and give to the poor, that's what it means really to keep those commandments. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Come and follow me. You'll have life. So this man asked for life. He trusted that Jesus was good. When he called him good, he called him God. He trusted that he was good. His request was for life. And Jesus said, listen, what's standing in your way is your obsession with your stuff. The third thing that we trust, not only others, not only ourselves, but we trust our stuff, our things, our possessions. This young man had accomplished a lot. He he was rich. He was upstanding. He was moral. He was obedient. But he knew that he was missing something. And his question reveals his heart. When he says, what must I do? What he's saying is, Jesus, okay, what thing do I need to produce? What do I need to come up with to give to you or to give to somebody so that I can make sure I have this thing that you keep talking about called eternal life? Listen, I'm good at coming up with things. What do you need? Money? You need uh, items? You need something for your house? You need some real estate? I can come up with stuff. What do you need so that I can make sure I have what you have? Uh, Keep the commandments. Which ones? Take care of people. Uh, I think I have. What am I lacking? Sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Come and follow me. You see, this man walked away sad because he trusted his possessions. That's where he got what he needed. Here's how you diagnose if you trust stuff, okay? Here's how you'll find out in your heart if you trust things and not God to make you okay. It's when you cannot rest until you get the thing that you currently don't have that you believe will give you peace. So what is it right now in your life that you don't have that you believe that if you could just get that thing, maybe it's a person, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a certain level of a bank account, maybe it's paying off something, what is the thing that you believe that once I have that, then I'll be okay. But until I get that, I'm not okay, but once I have it, I'll be okay. That's the thing you trust. Or, What's the thing that you have that you cannot imagine life without that you wouldn't be okay? When you see that, when you know what that is, 
you'll find the thing that you trust. I'll tell you a story about myself. Um, so Lisa and I, when we first got married and moved here, yes, 10 years ago almost, we moved here. Um, uh, we weren't the sharpest financial people. Let's just say it that way. We didn't grow up in houses with accountants or actuaries or even, you know, just people that halfway took care of their money. Um, and so we were in, about eight years ago, a bad financial position, and somebody introduced me to the famous Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey, people, any disciples out there? Woohoo! Yeah, Dave, okay. He does us some good solids there, doesn't he? Okay, so we get introduced to Dave Ramsey, and he's appealing to me on this debt-free life. You can be debt-free. And if you're debt-free, I start looking at, okay, I make this much money. And Lisa was in nursing school at this time, and I've got my calculator out knowing what she's going to make, and she's going to work overtime. And, uh, you know, I'm like, <laughs> don't tell her. Holidays, sign them up, let's go. Nurses, make, they can, right? <laughs> and I'm calculating. I'm, I'm seeing, okay, look at all the money we're going to be able to make. And if I don't owe anybody any money, I'm going to have all kinds of stuff. Right? I'm going to have money. This is going to be great. And so um, we, we get on this plan. We're going to pay off our debts. We've got some credit card debts. We're going to pay this off. And we're working hard on our cars. We're going to get those paid off and drive those without car payments. And then I've got my sights on this college debt. I'm going to pay this off. And then we're going to get this house paid off. And I've got this plan. You know, I've got spreadsheets and Excel sheets and the colors changes when numbers hit it. It's awesome. I've got a plan. You see, I went from, I used to use my money 10 years ago to consume, to fill the void in my heart. Whether it was a restaurant or a retail store, when I didn't feel okay, when I felt unsettled, we had to spend because I needed to feel better. And I went then to a new plan. If I don't owe anybody anything, I'm going to be okay. And all of a sudden, we had maybe a medical problem, $600. Got to pay for that. And then... My white car dies, and her green car dies, and we got to buy two cars in one year. I don't have enough cash for that yet. Dave Ramsey's going to be mad at me, right? Like I'm supposed to, I'm right at 10-speed, you know? Like, how am I going to do this? And I realized I was getting so upset because what was happening was I had thought in my mind that the moment I'm debt-free, I'll be okay. All of my security was tied up into the moment that I didn't owe anybody anything. I couldn't handle one hiccup, like a medical bill or a I couldn't handle it. I was so frustrated because I had set my hopes on not owing anybody a dime and then my life will be okay. See, I transferred from consumption to hoarding and skipped God. In the moment, Hebrews 13, verse 5, you know that promise God makes? I'll never leave you or forsake you. You know what he's talking about? He says, don't covet your money. Don't covet your It's money. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I think God has allowed me to have some hiccups, like a medical bill or something like that, to make sure I realize that I still have to trust him. Financial freedom is not spiritual freedom. So we can trust others, people that we give power to to deliver us freedom. We can trust ourselves, and we can trust our stuff. But the underlying message in all of these that Jesus says Verses 7 and 8, verse 14, verse 22, Jesus is saying, he's whispering, he's saying, trust me. Now, Luke shows us what that's supposed to look like. Look in verse 15. There were these parents that were bringing their children, their infants to Jesus. And the disciples were saying, no, 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 keep these rats away, right? These, these little kids, keep them away. And Jesus says, no, permit these children to come. And he says, unless you become... Like this child, you won't enter 
the kingdom. You see, no one teaches us the natural beauty of trust like a child. No one can teach us grown children the beauty and simplicity of trust like a child, especially an infant. Because an infant doesn't know anything else other than trust. I've got a new one in my house and I can confirm to you that that infant only knows how to say one thing and that one thing is, please help. And it says it in a way that's pretty loud. <laughs> but that baby knows that he can't do anything on his own. He knows it instinctively, naturally, and says, I trust. Somebody please help. But trust, as what Luke is saying here to us, was always supposed to be that natural for us. It was always supposed to be easy like that. We were supposed to live with God in a relationship like that baby is in the arms of Lisa right now. Just, I trust. I know that you'll provide for me. But sin has taught us not to lose our faith in God. That's not a real thing. You don't lose faith. You transfer faith. Faith doesn't go away. You don't live a life without faith. You transfer faith. And sin has taught us, tempted us and taught us to transfer faith from God to others, to ourself, to our stuff, to our, to our things. So how do we learn to trust again? Let me show you the last story, and then we'll be done. In verse 35, story of the blind man on the road to Jericho. How do we learn to have trust again? I want to take you back to the original story that I was telling at first. Rising Park, bears, no option. How did that person, let's presume that they made it, let's presume they picked the right tree, right? They survived. It's a good way to end the story. How did that person learn to trust that tree? Did they get down there with a microscope and look at the roots? Did they uh, touch the leaves before the bear showed up? No. How did they learn to trust that tree? Necessity demanded that they try. The necessity of their situation demanded that they try that tree to see if it's trustworthy. Now, you don't have to stay in that tree, but necessity in that moment demanded at least try. And I would suggest to you this morning that necessity, that your restless heart is necessity that demands that you at least try what it's like to trust God. You see, this story is about a blind man who's sitting on the road. He's as low as you can be in life. A blind beggar literally... He's a social outcast. He has no function, no use, no value to society. And so there's no question in his mind, this blind man's mind, that he has nothing and is in need of everything. He literally lives day by day begging people to give him something. That's how he lives. Trust. And when you and I, and he calls out to Jesus to save him, and he says, have mercy on me. I believe there's a connection between the tax collector and the story about the Pharisee when he beat his chest and said, be merciful to me, God, a sinner. We see that in live action here at the end when this man, Jesus, says, what do you want? He says, have mercy on me. What do you want? Help me to see. That's all I want. I just want to be able to see. You see, when you and I trust, when we transfer our trust from God to others, give, our, give that power to people, when we trust ourselves alone, or when we transfer our trust to our things, our stuff, to give us what we need, we become blind beggars. We are blind because we think they're going to give us what we need. 
We're convinced of that, right? That, that people have the ability to give us what we need or, or our stuff has the ability to give me what I finally need, this restless heart that's in me. Or myself, I'll just figure out a way to solve this. We're blind because we think that that will work and it won't. And we're beggars. We are beggars because we think that they can do that. And we become beggars because we're at the mercy of those things working out. Think about this. If you are expecting people to solve your restless heart, you are at the mercy of that person showing up. And what if they don't? You are at the mercy of that person being everything you've ever expected them to be. And what if they're not? You're a beggar. If you have put all of your faith in yourself, what happens if you don't deliver? What happens if you slip up? What happens if your health goes awry? What happens if you lose that job? What happens? You're a beggar at the mercy of circumstances and at the mercy of people doing and having things go right. You're a blind beggar hoping that things go right. And you've been around long enough. How often do things go exactly as you plan them to go? How often do every circumstance work out the way you thought it was going to work out? How often do people come through the way you think people are going to come through? How often? Rarely, if ever. You know why? Because people and things were never supposed to be the object of your faith. You were never supposed to look at people and your things and say, I trust you to deliver my life. You were never supposed to do that. There's only one person who can bear up under the weight of your trust. And he's proven himself trustworthy. In Luke 18, 31 through 34, the last vignette of trust. He's talking to the 12 and he tells them that he is going to go to Jerusalem and suffer. You see, Jesus walked the road of your deepest fears and your deserved treatment. Jesus experienced abandonment. We all fear that. Jesus experienced isolation. None of us want that. Jesus experienced ultimate public humiliation and shame. Jesus experienced being devalued and spit upon as a human. All these things that none of us ever want to experience, never want to uh, go through, but deserve. And he was ultimately had his life taken away. He was killed. This fact alone, that he went through all that for us, makes him our hero. But a better question is, why should we trust him? Because he's not just a dying hero. How do you know you can count on him? Look in verse 33, verse, the second part of it. it. says this, And after flogging him, they will kill him. Jesus speaking of himself. But on the third day, what's going to happen? Yes, he's going to walk the road that you deserve to walk, the shame, the torture, the torment. He's going to experience all that. He's going to die as your hero in your place. Great. But how do you know you can trust him? Why can you place all of the weight? Why can you bear all the weight of your life onto his shoulders? How do you know he's strong enough? Because he died for you? Yes, it's true. But look in verse 33. And in thir- on the third day, it says this. This guy's going to rise. Meaning he's going to come back from all the things that you fear, your deepest fears. He's going to come back from all the things that can take life from us. He's going to conquer it all, and none of those things will have power over him. So your deepest fears, the things that stir in you, that give you the most unrest, are not just the people and the jobs and the stuff. It's the anxiety of abandonment and isolation and shame. It's all of that. Jesus went into that, died for it, and has conquered it. And now you can trust him. And he can give you the same assurance and confidence that if you trust him, you too will overcome. I want to encourage you to look to his death. 
and know that all the punishment that you and I deserved has been paid for. But then ultimately look to his resurrection and know that your greatest fears have been conquered. And when you trust what he has done for you, you'll begin to trust who he is and what he can do for you today. He'll become the object of your faith, the one who provides you peace regardless of how circumstances go, the one who provides you joy because the God of the universe knows your name, and the one, the one who provides you satisfaction because the sovereign Lord of all says it's your mind and it's going to be okay regardless of how things go. Church, family, friends, if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to really ask yourself, who do I trust? And if you're not a Christian, evaluate this. The things you're currently trusting, there's no such thing as not having faith. Everybody has faith. It's just what do you have faith in? Evaluate what you're really trusting. And I would encourage you to give God a chance. Let's stand and sing. When we walk with us.